This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I'm very excited to be talking today with Richard O. Jones, journalist and author and fellow historical true crime podcaster. He's here to talk about his book, The First Celebrity Serial Killer in Southwest Ohio, The Confessions of the Strangler, Alfred Knapp. What a great book, and thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on your show, Eric. So I'd like to start by asking you when you first heard about Alfred Knapp, the Hamilton Strangler, and how you you came to write this book. Yeah. Um, actually, I kind of grew up uh, with, with Alfred Knapp. Uh, this crime that he was convicted of took place in my hometown, and he was famed for being the first electric chair case in Butler County. So you always kind of heard about him, you know, when you're interested in local history, but I never really got the full story of it until I started uh, digging into the research. Uh, just a little bit of background. I guess what happened was I worked for the local newspaper here, the Hamilton Journal News, for about 25 years. And I don't think I need to explain what, what's going on with the newspaper industry. So when they offered me a buyout in the fall of 2013, um, I had to struggle to find something to do next. I mean, I, w- I jumped at the chance, but I didn't have any backup plan, you know. Um, and I'd done some research on another uh, murder here in Hamilton, a, a famous case where uh, uh, a fellow named Rupert murdered 11 members of his family on Easter Sunday in 1975. And I'd done a lot of research on that uh, for another project, and I realized I had enough for a book. And so that's kind of what I decided to do is focus my uh, attentions on writing a couple books uh, during the period of uh, severance that the newspaper had given me. And in doing the research, I I stumbled upon some articles about Alfred Knapp, and I found out that there was a a whole lot more to the story than him just being the first electric chair case 
in Hamilton. And so I just started doing some research on that. The Rupert book is, 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 I've got a draft, but it's still unpublished. Um, but in, in negotiating with other publishers, I ended up publishing two other books instead of that one. And one of them was, was this one that I, that was the second one that I pitched to them and they liked it. So that's kind of how it came about. Awesome. <laughs> well, let's dive right in and talk about Alfred Knapp's early years. I know that there isn't much information, especially of his school-age years. But could you tell us what you know about he and his family? Mm-hmm. Uh, he came from a, not a large family. He had three sisters and a brother. They grew up in various places around Indiana. One of the things, and, and I, I'm not quite sure why, but they seemed to move around a lot. In fact, at one time, I, th- I think I counted at least 20 places and maybe as many as 25 uh, cities in Indiana and Ohio where this family lived when he was growing up. Uh, some of it was in Cincinnati, some in Indianapolis, and, and some in the smaller towns in uh, uh, New Albany, Indiana, for example, just all over the place. He had, had uh, older sisters, and they were all very protective of Alfred. When he was young, he got kicked in the head by a horse and was unconscious in a coma for a couple days. Uh, he had some other severe brain injuries and so he wasn't quite all there you know i kind of look at it uh he never really grew up i think alfred had the mind of a child and his family was quite accustomed to to covering for him and and making sure that that he was okay Uh, but there's nothing they could do about his compulsions that he had toward younger women how would you describe him physically and personality wise when he lived in Cincinnati for a while, he got the nickname Looney Nap because he had a habit of doing some strange things like, um, well, for example, he got hooked up with some of the opera companies. Of course, you know, there was a lot of a live theater back in the, in the turn of the century there. And he got hooked up as, as a supernumerary or, or an extra in some opera companies. And he would run around town in character with, you know, Roman costumes on and things of that sort. And he would get in trouble for doing things like throwing rocks at, at women coming out of a factory, you know, from a bridge. One time he got in trouble for dropping uh, some iron bars out of a, a, a third-story window for no apparent reason other than to just see people's reactions. So, like I said, I think he had kind of the mind of a child. Uh, he was very much attracted to petite younger women, and uh, and ultimately that, I think, was his downfall. So we know much more about Alfred Knapp in his early 20s. There will be some confessions later on that will reveal some of that information. But he marries a succession of women, starting with Emma Stubbs, then Jenny Connors, and finally Hannah Goddard. Right. Can you give us a timeline account of these marriages and what his lifestyle was like during this period and up to the point where he goes to jail for seven years in 1895. Mm-hmm. His first marriage was with uh, a young lady named Emma Stubbs. And like I said, he had uh, three older sisters. And so Emma Stubbs was a friend of theirs and would come over to the house uh, and, and to hang out with the sisters. And he ended up marrying her. Uh, then he got into trouble and went, went to uh, jail and she divorced him while he was uh, in prison. When he got back out, he joined up with his sister who had moved to Cincinnati by then. 
and that's where he met uh, his second and third wives in Cincinnati. Jenny Connors was actually from uh, Lawrenceburg, Indiana. He met her. She ended up, uh, well, according to the coroner report, committing suicide by jumping in the canal in Cincinnati. Um, they found her body a couple days after she, she went missing. Uh, his story was that uh, he was going into the Cincinnati Inquirer newspaper office to place an ad looking for work. You know, he'd spent a lot of time in and out of jail, and he was never really able to hold a job for very long, a lot of it due to his kind of bizarre behavior. And so he, he went in to place an ad to look for a job, and when he came out, Jenny was gone. And they found her her body in a canal uh, a day or two later. And at that time, then, he got hooked up with, uh, and this would have been around 1894. Uh, that's when he uh, married Hannah Knapp. Uh, Hannah was a boarder at his sister Mamie's house. Uh, they were kind of against the marriage because they knew you know, his predilections and, and his penchant for trouble. Uh, but nevertheless, they ended up getting married, and he went back into prison, and Hannah ended up staying with Mamie and Mr. King while he served a, a prison term. So Knapp is finally released from prison in June of 1902, and Hannah is waiting for him, isn't she? Yeah, because the family, because the sister Mamie and, and uh and a brother-in-law, they didn't approve of their relationship. So she came back to, Han- to Hamilton. That's where she grew up. Uh, her uncle Charlie still lived in Hamilton. So as he was getting ready to get out of prison, she moved back to Hamilton to meet up with, uh, to stay with uncle Charlie, uh, so that Alfred could join her and, and resume their, their marriage. And so he, so that was like, I think if that was the first time he actually came to Hamilton was, uh, when he got out of prison and came to, to, he was in Michigan City prison for, for an assault on a school teacher. And that's when he, uh, came to Hamilton. And they stayed with Uncle Charlie for a little while. Uh, but I guess Uncle Charlie had kind of a small place. So they ended up taking a house here in Fourth Street in Hamilton. And, uh, Alfred got a job driving a coal truck. And so that's kind of brings us up to the fall of 1902. <laughs> right. And as he's driving this coal cart around in one of his many temporary positions, as you mentioned, Hannah is unhappy. And rumor has it she is exploring divorce. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. There's no she there is some indication that she went to see a lawyer, but she hadn't actually started any legal proceedings so, yeah, she, she was not happy. Uh, you know, like I said, he, he was getting into a lot of trouble. Uh, he got fired from a previous job in Hamilton, uh, the one about dropping the iron bars out of a three-story window, uh, just for that kind of behavior. So I think she was on to, you know, things weren't quite right, and she wasn't very happy in, in what was going on there. So Hannah disappears, and Ed King, Knapp's brother-in-law, is suspicious of him, isn't he? Yeah, uh, a few days before Christmas that year, Alfred kind of shows up on their doorstep. They were living in a, a, a Cincinnati community called Cumminsville, which was on the, uh, there was a traction line, a train line that ran from Hamilton to Cumminsville. And Alfred pops in one day and, and says, uh, well, wh- where's Hannah? <laughs> As if she's run out on him. You know, she must have left me because, you know, they're like, well, she's not here, Alfred. Hannah's not here. Well, she, she must have left me. And so he stays with them a few days. He comes back and forth between Hamilton. Come to find out later he's selling her clothes 
he steals a gun from uh, Ed King, takes a train to West Virginia from some, for some inexplicable reason and sells the gun there. And then he kind of falls off the map for a little while as far as the Cincinnati family knows. Then in February, Ed King and Ed and Mamie King get a letter from his uh, her parents, who are living in Indianapolis now, that Alfred has remarried. And since there's no divorce decree, Ed King gets uh, gets very suspicious. And so he makes a trip to Hamilton to find out what was going on. And he discovers that on the day that Hannah disappeared, Alfred had been out and about town early in the morning. He rented a spring wagon. He uh, went to a shoe store and got a big box that they shipped shoes in, said he had some things he had to move. Uh, he even hired a, a fella, gave a fella a nickel to help him carry the box, a big box from his upstairs room down to the spring wagon. And, and people see him driving the spring wagon out toward the river, out of town, south of town. And so the police get wind of Ed King. Uh, one of the places Ed King goes to is, is a bar that's owned by the brother of, of Detective Linehan, Captain Linehan. And he wears a disguise as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a description of him wearing some hideous wig. <laughs> Yeah. So he was, he was attracted, and apparently they were drinking a little bit along the way too, you know. So they attracted a little bit of attention, and Captain Linehan got hold of it and said, well, you know, you better let us take over, and, uh, and sent King on his way. Uh, he actually had brought, because he was a railroad man, he did, uh, ventilation work for, for railroads, and he uh, had a friend who was a detective, so it was, as he and a detective buddy of his, a railroad detective friend of his, that was going around Hamilton asking all these questions. So when they told Linehan what was going on, he, he sent them back to Cincinnati, and uh, they took over the investigation from there. And the police find Knapp with his new bride and her stepfather, right? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of unclear how the, the uh, Mr. Owings came into uh, uh, possession, for lack of a better word, of Anna Mae Gamble, but uh, she was not his, he was not her natural father, but had somehow adopted her. He was a war veteran, and I'm guessing maybe back when he was married or or something that he and his wife adopted her. But at the t- at this time, though, he and, and uh, Anna Mae Gamble are living alone in a pretty dank basement apartment in, in downtown Indianapolis. So they find him there, they haul him in, and the interrogation of Alfred Knapp begins. But interestingly, it's done in the office of Mayor Charlie Bosch. Yes. Uh, I think part of the reason for that was, well, for one thing, that the mayor position was uh, more a, kind of a powerful position back in those days. But the other thing was that uh, when, when Knapp and when Hannah and uh, Alfred moved to 4th Street in Hamilton, they lived next door to the mayor, and the mayor knew who he was, and he thought he was kind of a, a sweet but quirky guy, so I think he took a particular interest in this case. And, and the thing was that Alfred, by this time, uh, he started getting, I think, kind of a, a, a starstruck. When he came back to Hamilton, there were people waiting at the train station for him. So all of a sudden, he's kind of a celebrity, and so he starts playing playing out like that, and that's why I, I call it the celebrity serial killer. I think he got, I think he enjoyed the attention that he was getting, and so he was playing to that 
through a lot of this interrogation and so forth. He would be very coy. He would he would say, well, I got something to tell you, but I'm not ready to tell you yet. You know, that kind of stuff. And he opens up to Charlie Bosch so readily because Bosch has sort of befriended Knapp and Bosch gets a confession out of him. Uh, yeah, yeah. The uh, he, he had told him so much stuff that uh, the policemen that were part of uh, the sweat that they were putting him in, they left the room to go and check out some of his stories. And uh, and that was when Charlie Bosch, the mayor, just said, come on, it's just us out now, Alfred. You, you can talk to me. We know each other. We're pals. And uh, Alfred says, well, you know, I, I really don't think I can tell you. And, and the mayor says, well, if I can you write it down? And so he gave him a piece of paper, and that's uh, how, how he made the, the big confession. And he confesses initially to one murder, correct? Yeah, at first he just confesses to Hannah. He tells a story about uh, he strangled her in her sleep for no apparent reason, and I really don't think he had a good reason. I think he was just, like I said, he wasn't right in his head. I think he woke up and and just had, he was compelled to do this. Uh, he, he was For a time, he was going to make a... Uh, make a defense out of being a sleepwalker and having done it without his knowledge. But oddly enough, there was another guy in, in the Butler County Jail at the same time who was making the same defense. So he kind of had to, to alter it a little bit later on. But his idea was that, that he just woke up about 5 o'clock in the morning and, and strangled her in her sleep. And then he went out and got the spring wagon, got the box, put the body in the box, took it down to the Great Miami River and threw the box in the water. Uh, at this time, the, the body hadn't shown up or anything yet, so those were some of the things that they were checking on. So after he confesses, he gets multiple visits from multiple doctors in the following days. What is their diagnosis of his mental state? <laughs> well, they, they weren't exactly as scientific back then as we were today. Um, <laughs> and um, they just kind of basically said that he was a pervert and, and he didn't have any control over what he was doing. Uh, and, and they didn't really have enough to make an, an insanity defense, I don't think, although he did try. They let him take pictures of his hands so that the palm readers could take a look at it. I think there was even a, a phrenologist that came and took a look at it. But they pretty much judged him that he, he wasn't right in the head and that he probably wasn't in control of, of what he was doing. But you know, it wasn't enough to get, to get a, an insanity defense. I wanted to ask you about that, his hands. These reporters seem to be obsessed with his hands. Can you describe his hands and the conclusions that they came to regarding them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, there's a in the book. I actually have a picture from the Cincinnati Enquirer where they uh, they they did an analysis of his hands, and they have just like close up pictures of it. I think because he was a strangler, you know, they took particular interest in that because you know he didn't grot her or anything. I mean, he strangled her with with his bare hands. And so, you know, he was, he, he worked hard. So he had, he, they weren't large hands and they weren't particularly strong, but they were calloused and, and, uh, and, and kind of dirty, I guess, just from, from being a worker. Uh, you can kind of see in the picture that, uh, you know, they're, he's like, like Donald Trump, you know, he has little short stubby fingers. <laughs> <laughs> so he sits down with the mayor again. And again, he confesses. And this time to a lot more. Yeah. Um, after he confessed to Hannah's murder, they took uh, what they called a confessional ride. Um, they got in a couple of uh, buggies and they went down to the river to see if, 
you know, maybe they could find traces of the box and that kind of stuff. And he continued this little coy act that he was doing. It's like, well, I got more to tell you, but I don't want to tell you just yet. And so after they got him back the next day, they renewed, uh, they kind of was like, I guess just basically a repeat of the day before. They sat him down for the sweat. And at that time, Charlie Bosch knew that you know, he had a kind of a special relationship now with Alfred. So when the other policeman left the room, uh, he got him to confess again. And uh, he confessed to four other murders, including the murder of his wife, Jenny Knapp, that had been ruled a suicide by the Hamilton County coroner. Now, surprisingly, through all of this, he's allowed to meet reporters covering the case. And as you've already alluded to, this is a pretty sensational trial in southern Ohio, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And they're trying to outdo each other in scooping new angles on Knapp. Yeah, sure. I think I think it's important to know about that is that Hamilton really had a reputation in the 1800s for being a kind of a frontier-style town. Well, for example, there was a, a whiskey ring. There were a lot of distilleries, and they figured out a way to cheat the tax system. And so a, a big whiskey ring actually started here that spread out, that covered most of the eastern part of the country. So Hamilton had a pretty rough reputation. And in 1870, we had a, a, a very sensational trial where a, a man was killed in a bar on Christmas Eve, uh, there was such indignation about it that they moved the trial to Lebanon, Ohio, and the the, the defendant was uh, a fellow by the name of Tom McGeehan, and his attorney was Clem Vallandingham, who was pretty famous as a copperhead, a, a, a Democrat who was against the Civil War, and in fact he had been uh, been tried for uh, something akin to treason and, and exiled from the country for a while, but he came back and was practicing law and became. Uh, McGeehan's lawyer, and during the trial in Lebanon, as he was practicing his defense, uh, he was going to show how the the victim, uh, Tom Myers, uh, probably shot himself and was demonstrating how he took the gun out of his belt and would have shot himself and actually did shoot himself. Uh, Vlandingham in the in the Golden Lamb Hotel while he was practicing, he shot himself in the stomach pretty much in the same way that Tom Myers died. Ugh. So he kind of proved his case, but he lost his life over it. And so there's a lot more indignation because Vlandingham was a very popular fellow. After that, you know, things kind of settled down in Hamilton. And after that, we didn't have an indictment for first-degree murder until 1902. So for one thing, that I, I don't think the officials in Hamilton – we're quite accustomed to dealing with this kind of attention. Uh, the murders that Alfred confessed to had taken place in Cincinnati and Indianapolis. And so it attracted a lot of attention from the Midwest press, not only those cities, but, you know, they were sending reporters from Chicago and, and you know, all, all over the country. Uh, so there were dozens and dozens of reporters just kind of swamped Hamilton, and they didn't know what to do with him. So they kind of let him have access at first. And early on, I, I describe a scene where the the day that he confessed to those four murders, there were so many reporters that they couldn't put them all in the jail. So, you know, at the time, the sheriff lived in the house next door, so they took Alfred to the sheriff's dining room, and they paint this picture of him sitting in a chair, smoking a cigar with his feet kicked back, talking about these ghastly crimes as if he were talking about a sporting event. 
And they continued to let the press have that kind of access to him um, until he had a hearing. And uh, they got him all cleaned up for the hearing. And as they were on their way out, one of the reporters said, uh, you know, can we get a new picture of you, Alfred? You look you look so good now. And, and so they took him into the courtyard and they started taking pictures of him. And he was, you know, playing the, the celebrity. And uh, somebody got the bright idea of this, like, because he was the strangler. Why don't we get a picture of him with his hands around some young girl's throat? And then everybody thought, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> and so they actually, from the stories, they found a willing, they didn't say who it was, but they found somebody who was willing to, uh, a young lady who was willing to be a model for this photo shoot until the sheriff got wind of it. And he put the kibosh to that. And after that, uh, they really restricted his access to the press. But by that time, there's so much other things started coming out that they started reporting on all this family drama. And so because the newspapers were very competitive, they all were, it seemed to me, reading this, you know, a hundred years later, uh, that they were all being very competitive about trying to get, get to that story uh, about this, this, this sweeping family drama and the conflict between the sister that supported him and wanted to protect him and the sister and brother-in-law that turned him into the police. And then his parents were caught in the middle of all this. So, yeah, there was a lot of competition, and so they did a lot of reporting. Uh, I, I actually traveled to, to Indianapolis and, and read the newspapers there from the library. And I went to Dayton, Ohio, because they were very interested in it. Uh, so I read at least a dozen different newspapers' uh, accounts of this case through the whole arc of it all. So his wife, Anna, initially sticks by his side. She's a really interesting character. You talked a little bit about her background earlier, but give us a, a, a description of her, if you don't mind. Uh, we first actually meet Anna Mae Gamble, Nap, when a reporter goes to visit her because he had told the press that he had tried to, to kill this wife as well. She, she was a young woman and she had, uh, very sharp features. Uh, I, I don't think she was, she was very bright. And, uh, some of the newspaper accounts of her were pretty harsh. Some of them called her a troll, in fact. Uh, they called her a doll, you know, that she was no bigger than a doll. And, and those kinds of things. She had a, apparently had a very shrill voice. And what, yeah, she was, she was going to stick by her husband. She said she didn't care if he killed anybody or not. He was good to me. Uh, <laughs> so, so she did stick by him for a while and she actually made a visit to Hamilton and they made a big deal out of that as well. She tried to bring him a clock and, and, uh, they wouldn't let him have it because it smelled like, uh, carbolic acid. So they thought she was trying to sneak him in. That, that was something that they used back in those days to a lot of people use that to commit suicide. So they were a little bit suspicious of that. Um, yeah, the, the press was really pretty harsh with her calling her names and, and making fun of the way she looked. So yeah, she wasn't, she wasn't the brightest thing. I wrote this down. Anna tells the police when they ask her if she'd want to still live with the greatest fiend in the world, she says, Yes, I would. I don't care what he is or how many people he murdered. He didn't murder me, and that's all I care for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think she, I think enough people talked to her after that that kind of convinced her that, uh, you know, she, she, she actually might have gotten pretty lucky that, that he didn't strangle her in her, in her sleep as well. We will be right back. Some of us love history. 
Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned.
So So let's talk a little bit about his sister, Sadie. We've already mentioned his other sister, Mamie King, and her husband, Ed. His third wife, Hannah, had boarded with Mamie and Ed King, and they developed a really close relationship with Hannah, so close that they turned against Alfred when he confessed to murdering her. But their sister, Sadie, stays tight with their brother and really comes to his aid, doesn't he? Can you talk about her presence in the courtroom and the aura she brought to the proceedings? Yeah, she she really made an impression um, on, on the on the press when she came to his hearing. Um, they described her bearing, you know, she was dressed to the nines and she was very formal and very well spoken. And uh, she had a private conversation with with the. It was a mayor's court. He also. Charlie Bosch also held court at the time for the preliminary hearing. So she had a private audience with him. Uh, you know, she had the big feather in her cap and was, you know, just so smartly dressed. Yeah. And the conflict between her and Mamie really starts to take center stage after, uh, the sheriff Bisdorf cuts off access to Alfred. Um, so they start playing up this family drama and the conflict between the two there. Yeah, she made quite quite the splash in Hamilton. Then Alfred Knapp decides to sit down with a reporter from the Cincinnati Inquirer. And at the sit-down, he reveals some horrific and specific details of many of his crimes, doesn't he? Yes, yes, he does. And in fact, he even implicates Hannah in one of the murders, saying that she, she helped him out. Um, and that was the case of... Uh, a, a young lady who was murdered in a, in a rooming house in, in Cincinnati uh, that had gone unsolved. Yeah, he was filled up with these details about these murders and how they took place. And so he pretty much had had everyone convinced that that uh, he had done all these these horrible things. Uh, but he was so casual about it uh, that that was kind of unnerving to a lot of people, I think, um, that he would just be able to to talk about these, as, you know, just as if he was a hunting trip or a baseball game or something like that. Uh, I, I think that really set a lot of people back. So at this meeting with this reporter, there are three more women that Knapp confesses to murdering. And we won't go into the details. Um, people can purchase your book if, if they want to know more. But I do want to talk about one of them, because the father of a girl that he murders, a girl named Emma Littleman, actually visits him in prison and this encounter really shakes Nap up. Can can you talk about that murder and the visit the father's victim makes to see him? Yeah, uh, that was a one of the particularly. The, the, there were a couple of these crimes that he committed to that that were particularly heinous, and, and one of them was, was Emma Littleman. Uh, her body was found. Um, I think she was she was young, like thirteen years old, and her body was found in a lumber yard underneath a stack of lumber. Some young boys, there was, a, I guess, a swimming hole nearby, and they would uh, ditch their clothes so that their parents wouldn't know that they were going swimming and hide them in the lumber yard. And so then they did that, and then they went swimming. When they came back to get their clothes, they discovered this this body. There was really weren't any suspects in that case. I mean, they, they did a lot of questioning. They, they saw some people who looked suspicious wandering around. Uh, but they never really had a, a firm suspect. So after Alfred confessed to these, Herman Littleman, the, the girl's father, comes to visit him in the jail. And, and this was the first time that, that Alfred ever expressed anything like remorse. Uh, he said, 
I'm, I'm quoting from the book here. I'm just as sorry as can be that your little Emma is dead. She had eyes and hair like yours, but a little lighter. Yes, the girl favored you greatly. And so Littleman looked at him and said, I've never seen this man before, and I don't care to look at him anymore. And so after he turned away and left was the first time that Alfred, they looked at him, and he uh, he was quite moved with that and probably for the first time showed emotion about these terrible things that he said he was had done. And he murders poor Emma by strangling her, right, as he did with all of his victims. Yes. He even at one point, and I don't recall specifically in the book where I read this, but he's so erratic, so crazy, and this compulsion he has to choke women is so overwhelming that at one point he <laughs> leaps off of a wagon or a cart, and I I don't remember what he was driving, but he jumps out into the middle of a crowded park, runs up to a woman, and just starts strangling her in broad daylight. Yes, yeah, that's correct, and that's actually the crime that he was... Uh he did serve some time in that in the Ohio State Penitentiary. Um, that was the, the the first time his first Ohio prison term was was on account of that. That was at Burnett Woods in Cincinnati. Yeah, he just for some inexplicable reason hopped off of his cart and uh, went and choked this girl. They they broke it up, but apparently and he ran away. But I guess his name was painted on the side of the the, the wagon, so that's how they knew it was him. So. Part of this interview with the Cincinnati reporter includes going into some pretty lurid detail on how he killed his second wife, Jenny. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So after he got out of uh, the, the Ohio prison that time, I think that was when he came back to Cincinnati and uh, got uh, reacquainted with Jenny. She had waited for him while he was in jail. And uh, I, I told the story earlier about uh, how he said that he went into the Inquirer office to place an ad, and when he came back, she was gone. Well, now now that he's confessing to these murders, he changes that story up a little bit and says that they were they were fussing with each other, and she actually wanted him to kill her and that they were going to embark on this kind of a suicide pact. Uh, but then after he killed her, he chickened out and didn't follow through with it. Um, so that was one of the, the the four murders that he confessed to. As it would turn out in the coroner's report, however, Jenny was, was pregnant, and his sister Mamie had testified at the coroner's inquest that she was not happy about that, and that's why they ruled it a suicide. Um, but in... But in uh, his his new story he he says that that she actually asked him to kill her and that they were that they were going to do a suicide pact and he chickened out so just before his own trial he's called to testify in another case there are two girls named Motzer who were assaulted and another man was being tried for it can, can you talk more about that yeah, this this would have happened. Uh, the assault of the Mozart girls happened in September, of uh, before he killed Hannah. Basically, two little girls were looking in the window of a, a butcher shop, and they were assaulted by a stranger, who took them back in the alley and hit one of them over the head, and the other one went running. Um, they they both survived the attack, 
but uh, they brought in a couple of bloodhounds from from Dayton, Ohio, and uh, on the train, and they set the bloodhounds on the case, and they went kind of a circuitous route around town, and ended up in in a in a part of town uh, we call Peck's Edition, which was uh, kind of a poor farming area at that time. It was bottomlands on the river, uh, you know, but a lot of people still farm there until they would get flooded out. So, so they, you know, they, so they were very poor people there. And the bloodhounds went to the house of this fellow named Joe Roth. And even though he says he didn't do it and, and insisted that he didn't do it, uh, they still arrested him for it. When they, uh, arrested Knapp though, one of the first things that they kind of noticed was that he looked an awful lot like Joe Roth. And one of the girls had actually identified Joe Roth as, as the person that, that, uh, had done the assault. But they noticed that Alfred and Joe Roth looked an awful lot alike, and so uh, they questioned him on that. And, of course, he, he denied that it was his, but I think mostly he was afraid of, of being lynched because uh, Joe Roth actually had kind of a close call with that when they arrested him. And so they called him to testify in, in that case, yeah. Yeah, and because this was an assault on two girls, this definitely has turn-of-the-century lynching all over it. The crowd had kind of camped out on the courthouse lawn the first couple of days that Joe Roth was in custody, and the sheriff actually had to post guards around the jail to, uh, to make sure that they didn't storm. You know, like I said, at the time, Hamilton hadn't had a lot of murders and stuff for a while, so, so I guess they were ripe for some indignation. <laughs> so let's talk about his trial. He gets pretty lucky with his defense team, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, actually, he his sister hires a fellow by the name of Thomas Darby to be his uh, lead defense lawyer, and and Thomas Darby would later go on to become a, a prosecutor in Hamilton County, and uh, for whatever reason, he really took a an intense interest in this case and literally worked himself sick in in defending Alfred Knapp. You know, of course, back then there was a lot of flus and strange bugs going around anyway but the trial took place in the very hot part of the summer and while he was making his uh his closing arguments darby actually collapsed and uh the the, the prosecuting attorney helped him to a chair and uh he actually wasn't present at the at the delivery of the verdict because he was still ill but yeah he literally worked himself ill uh working this case um, and, and trying to bring across that, that insanity defense. And his attorneys make a, a valiant effort at proving his insanity. They march out a parade of witnesses who testify about some of the crazy things he did. <laughs> oh, yeah, and they had him uh, shave his hair really close or cut his hair really close so that you could see the uh, the horseshoe impression on the side of his head where he was kicked in the head as a child. But despite the best efforts of the defense... The jury does not vote in Knapp's favor. No, no, they do not. In fact, uh, like I said, he becomes our first electric chair case. Before the 1890s, capital cases were, you know, executions were carried out in the counties. And we did have an execution in 1884 here in Butler County. Uh, and that was the last one. And then in the 1890s, uh, they, they, with the advent of the electric chair, uh, they started doing executions in this, the Ohio Penitentiary in Columbus, and Alfred was our first uh, uh, capital case. So there was no insanity plea. The jury immediately decided that he was guilty. Right. But the big question for the jury was whether or not mercy would be offered. Right, and they did not. I think just because of 
you know, the, the other murders weren't part of the case, but I don't think that they were far out of people's mind. You know, and his sister Sadie was so bound and determined to get this reversed that she went and found every single jury member and asked each and every one of them to sign a paper saying that they'd changed their mind about the no mercy decision. (laughs) But none of them did. She was incredibly persistent, though, and and fought for him to the very end. Yeah, Sadie was, yeah, she was loyal to the very end, to the very end. She she really stuck by her brother. You know, I, I think that comes because she was the oldest sister, and we, you know, we have this whole family history of them trying to protect Alfred and trying to keep him out of trouble, trying to save him from himself, I guess, in a lot of cases. And so she still, yeah, she stuck by him to the bitter end. So he's granted a new trial by a judge, but that quickly disappears. Yeah, they, they brought him back to Hamilton to face a new trial. Uh, uh, but then the, that, that other decision got overturned again, so they sent him right back to Columbus. So what were his final hours like before his execution? They kind of describe it as, as being um, kind of carefree and unconcerned about it all. In fact, he had told a newspaper reporter that uh, he knew how to get around the electric chair, that they could apply the juice to him, but he had a way that he could hold himself that it would just pass right through and wouldn't affect him at all. Yeah, So, <laughs> and he would twist his body somehow. Yeah, 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 hold his foot. I don't know what it was, but yeah, that he had this, this secret technique that he, he discovered that, that would keep him from, from getting electrocuted. Um, of course, that didn't work. And Sadie actually, she applied. She wanted to be there with him, and they wouldn't wouldn't allow her into the execution room. Uh, but he had apparently he uh, somebody had given him an accordion, and he would play the tune. There's going to be a hot time in the old town tonight, endlessly. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> in, in the days leading up to his execution, yeah. So he seemed to be c- quite unconcerned about it all. So just before he's electrocuted he makes a final confession about the Motzer case. Yeah. Yeah. One, one of the things that Sadie does, um, she, she wants him to come clean about it all because he's told so many lies. His stories have been so contradictory. You know, she didn't know what to believe. Uh, she wanted to believe the best for him, but she wanted him to come clean with it all. And so for the sake of Joe Roth, they convinced him that, uh, that he should write out the, 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 this confession. And so he finally owns up to the, uh, to the, the assault on the Mozart girls. Was that enough to get Joe Roth released? Yes, it was, actually. So much of this story centers around Alfred Knapp's celebrity status, as we've talked about a little bit already. Was there anything that personally struck you about how he was treated by the press and the public? Here's, here's the thing that really gets me about this. And, and the reason I, st- I start my book with, start telling the story with this, because, uh, Captain Linehan left Hamilton on a 10 o'clock train to go to Indianapolis. And they rouse Alfred out of his bed about four o'clock in the morning. And apparently some reporters, because all this was already buzzing around town, some reporters went with him and they telegraphed a story back to Hamilton so that the Sun, which was normally an afternoon paper, came out with a special morning edition saying that Alfred Knapp had been arrested for wife murder, although he'd actually only been arrested for bigamy. 
they hadn't mentioned murder to him at all yet. So that's why there was a crowd waiting for him when he got back at 1030 in the morning. So in 12 hours, he was already gathering this this fame. And so there was a couple hundred people waiting for him at the train station, including some people that he knew. He, He saw Uncle Charlie there, for example. And so I think when they started asking him these questions, that he became kind of addicted to the celebrity of it. And so he would tell, not only did he confess to these, these murders, but he was, we would tell him all kinds of stories. Uh, one time in particular, I remember, um, a, a reporter uh, told the story in the newspaper about how, how Alfred Knapp had been chased by a posse in Missouri and, you know, this big elaborate story. And, uh, after they printed, they come to find out that that had just been told in some kind of pulp magazine. So, you know, they, they kind of busted him on telling this big lie. I, I think he just got so wrapped up in the celebrity of it that he was, would just start telling anything, you know, because he, he was just feeding off the attention. He, he was feeding off the attention. Absolutely. And so he kind of, that's why he attained this, the celebrity status. And before Alfred, you know, of course we had H.H. H. Holmes and a couple others, but Holmes never was like, a, a media darling like Alfred turned out to be. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That, uh, you know, Holmes actually came out with a confession a little bit before he died, but there weren't a lot of interviews and in-depth things with him like there was with Alfred Knapp. So he may be like, I, I would make a case that the first true celebrity serial killer that we've had in this country. Of course, back then we still weren't calling them serial killers. That's a more of a modern term. And particularly disturbing, and I, and I know this happens today too, but... Young women were just flocking to him, and he really soaked it in. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a little passage at one point where uh, s- some girls are kind of fawning over him, and he gives them a little wink or something, and they, they kind of swoon. Yeah, there's a lot of that. But, you know, I don't think that wasn't all that uncommon. You know, as, as I pursue a lot of these cases for my podcast, you know, one, one of the common things that you read about is how the courtroom was packed with women. Well, yeah, and that's a great segue. Let's talk about your podcast, True Crime Historian. Can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, sure, I'd love to. Um, you know, as I, I wrote these books, um, you know, because I'm a writer, a, a, a journalist, you know, all these years, you know, um, I, I thought I would be, you know, my second career then would be, you know, writing these true crime books. Um as it turns out, when I got my first royalty check, I was really disappointed, you know, that although I'd sold some books, I wasn't making a whole lot of money off of this. And I realized that I was making more money as a speaker, you know, to go to libraries and historical societies and get the honorarium and sell the books out of my own personal stash that, that I had bought. I was making more money as a speaker than than as an author. And so I thought, well, let me try and turn this around a little bit. And of course, about the same time, you know, the serial podcast had made its big splash. And, um, uh, so I kind of had this idea to do a, a historical crime podcast that would sound like serial, you know, where you get actors to do the different parts and that kind of stuff. Well, it turns out that takes a whole lot of work, but, as I was doing the research, I would become just enchanted with these old newspaper accounts because back in those days, and there's there's really a sweet spot. You probably know this, too. There's really a sweet spot between about 1870 and, um, you know, let's say sometime in the 1930s where 
the, the, the prose and the writing and these newspaper accounts of these crimes were so, uh, so lurid, you know, so, so, so spectacular, you know, they, they really went out of their way to, to, to capture the flavor of, you know, what was going on in the courtroom and, and talking to all these people, you know, the, the, uh, so many cases I would read about where the, it seemed like the reporters were right in the room while police were interrogating these fellas, you know, and that kind of stuff. So I became really enchanted with, with the writing. And so then my, the idea kind of evolved into, um, let's just create stories, uh, of true crime, his, of historical crimes and, and, and maybe celebrate that, that, you know, the golden age of yellow journalism, I like to call it. Let's celebrate that, that kind of writing, uh, because they don't do that anymore. You know, now it's, you know, I, I could never get away with some of the things that I read about, you know, as, as a newspaper reporter, I could never get away with, with reporting about things the way that I read them in these old newspapers. And so I just started falling in love with all these reports. And as I would do the research for my books, you know, I get distracted by headlines, right? <laughs> and, uh, so I started writing, uh, uh, shorter books, um, and I sell them on my website. Uh, I call them the $2 terrors. And I, I wrote about, I've written about 10 of those so far, where they're kind of novella length stories. Not, not quite enough for a book, um, but, but yet interesting, uh, compelling stories that were well written and well told, um, and so, so for the podcast, I kind of pay tribute to the, to that writing, and probably ninety percent of what I do is taken straight from those historic pages. That's awesome, and you did a great series about John Dillinger, and you recorded it right from the actual Biograph Theater stage. Yeah, actually, when I when I first started doing that Dillinger series, um, you know, because when I started when I started writing books about crime, I was at a cocktail party uh, at Miami University here, and and one of the history professors says, uh, you know, Richard, you ought to you ought to write a book about Dillinger, and I said, oh man, there are so many books about Dillinger. He says, well, there's a reason for that, you know, and I thought, well, yeah, because they sell, <laughs> and so. So when I started doing the podcast, I, I tried to, I wanted to see if that would help me, you know, get some listeners. So I did a, a six part series on John Dillinger because he, um, actually there's a local connection to that here as well, uh, in that when they busted him out, they, when, when, uh, Pierpont and those fellows busted him out of the Lima jail, they planned that attack from Hamilton and they brought Dillinger back to Hamilton for a day or two after they busted him out of Lima. So we have that little bit of local connection to my hometown. Um, so I, I told the Dillinger story in, in six parts. And as I was getting ready to start on it, a friend of mine um, uh, does a lot of commercial work in Chicago. And she was getting ready to go up to do a pizza commercial. And I just kind of offhandedly said, uh, well, while you're up there, why don't you uh, go drop by the Biograph Theater and see if I can read the last chapter of this Dillinger story there. And she thought that was a great idea. So she did. We didn't have enough time to put together an audience or anything like that. But they did allow me to go into the to Biograph, which is now like a, you know, like a, a live act, you know, live theater. Not It was a movie theater then, but now they do plays there. Uh, they actually let me go in and sit on the stage and uh, read the final the final chapter of the Dillinger saga right there where it happened. So that was kind of cool. Well, thanks so much for this, Richard. It's been great. You're welcome, Eric. Thanks for having me on. I, I'm glad you like my book, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, be able to chat again sometime soon. And there we are, another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. 
I'm Eric Rivenis. Please, again, do not forget to leave a rating or review on iTunes if you get a chance. Please take it easy, and I hope you have a safe tomorrow.